0: H-E-L-P dot com slash sober. Do you struggle with the idea of sobriety because you just can't imagine your life without alcohol in it? Do you go back and forth because you're unsure if you actually have a problem and need to quit for good? Maybe you look around and you think, everyone drinks like I do. I'm not that bad. That's why I asked Dr. Matt Gloviak, certified advanced alcohol and other drug counselor, to join us to talk about the difference between a heavy or daily drinker and someone who has alcohol use disorder. So in this episode, you'll learn how we normalize our drinking, why it's hard for us to control our drinking, even though we're so desperate to figure it out, what to do if you can't imagine your life without alcohol, and how to learn what to do with your time in sobriety so you don't go backwards. Dr. Gloviak and I first connected when he was an expert source for one of my WebMD articles, which I'll link in the show notes, and his compassionate approach inspired me to have him on the show, and I'm so glad that I did. So let's get to the conversation. Dr. Gloviak, thank you so much for joining me today. No problem. So you are a counselor and you work with people who struggle with addiction and you're a professor. What made you interested in getting involved in this work?
1: You know, um, what's really interesting about it, specific to the addiction piece, that it was more so something that ultimately found me throughout my academic career, field experience, opportunities, and so on. When I was a master's student at uh, Walden University, and I was working toward my master's degree in mental health counseling, and I was looking for different internship experiences. Uh, the one that ended up working out was one where I worked with court-mandated clients who had uh, DUIs. So I do weekly support groups, mostly psychoeducation type groups, working with them. Then again, when I was completing my doctorate in counselor education and supervision, I was doing an externship at Northern Illinois University, and part of the work that I did was clinical work, and while I was working with clients, the ones who seemed to resonate strongest with me were the ones who were struggling with various addiction issues, and when I went to apply for my first full-time counseling job, which was actually before the externship at uh, Northern Illinois University when I was completing my doctorate, you know, I was employed full-time time at a methadone clinic and had a 62 client caseload. For those of you who are unfamiliar with what a methadone clinic is, it worked primarily with opioid use disorder. Uh, most of the clients who I would see there uh, had an addiction to heroin, intravenous use, many co-occurring disorders, major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, schizophrenia, personality disorders, PTSD. You know, So really work with some complicated cases uh, throughout that type of experience. So it was something that ultimately found me, but I'm more of a personal level. You know, there's a lot of addiction that does run through my family. I've had many uh, friends, other close people to me uh, really struggle with addiction throughout their life. I've had individuals in my personal life pass away from overdose. Unfortunately, you know, I've seen it in the field of work that I do. And I feel like this is a very uh, misunderstood, misrepresented population. So it's one that's very close to my heart. And I really try to do everything I can to advocate on their behalf and educate the public on really what they need to know to be able to help their loved ones.
0: 62 people is a really big caseload. And you must have heard a lot of really just sad, challenging stories. How did you protect your own mental health and peace during that time?
1: I did. It was very difficult um, going into it. And admittedly, you know, before I started working with the population, I had some of my own biases that I held on to, thinking to myself, how can somebody possibly get to a point in their life where they're, you know, struggling personally, letting down other people in their lives? How are parents not providing for their children? How are people stealing from loved ones and so on? And it was really difficult. And I had clients who would start coming into me and sharing their stories. And I found myself really beginning to empathize with them and what really hit me is when i was listening to some of the past traumas that were experienced by my clients and i was reflecting upon it personally i would think to myself well matt if you were in this individual's shoes can you have guaranteed that you wouldn't have had an issue with uh, drugs or alcohol can you guarantee that you wouldn't have been at this point in your life where you're injecting heroin and when the answer was no it really started to hit home and you know, again, it got that warmth in my heart that these individuals are really great people who've dealt with some very difficult things and as extreme as it seems to get to a point of, you know, a severe substance use addiction. To tell you the truth, many of the stories that I've heard, you know, I can see exactly why that would happen, you know, for them. So for me to go in there and try to judge these individuals, you know, is just completely inappropriate. So as I was speaking to them and seeing so many of them going through a hard time. So many of them were professionals. So many of them were parents who were trying to provide the best they could for their children so many of them were individuals who were trying to find meaningful employment, get an education and so on, but just struggling with where to start. Yeah, I knew that, that was the right field for me to be able to provide those opportunities. A difficult field, difficult field to say the least, but it's also one that's extremely rewarding being able to see somebody get their life back on track because that's always possible.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because I actually had the same biases when I was growing up until I started having a similar struggle and then that you know caused a lot of self-hatred and I couldn't understand like like now this is me and I had all of these judgments about other people and kind of what they were doing and so I think learning eventually to become compassionate to other people and seeing that it's not so much a choice or a moral failing or a weakness has been helpful and that was the main reason that I wanted to speak to you today was the way that you write so compassionately and speak so compassionately on the topic
1: no, absolutely. And again, you know, I sincerely appreciate everything you just shared right there. You know, and in a moment of, of full self disclosure with you as well, you know, I mean, I've certainly recognized it for myself, you know, addiction does run through the family. There have been many individuals who've struggled with various drugs, alcohol, and so on. As I said, I've had people in my personal life, my family, you know, pass away from overdose. And I realized that I too have the addiction gene, you know, especially while I was an undergraduate student at the University of Illinois. You know, I was in the marching alliance and I you know I was in a fraternity you know, had a lot of friends who liked to party and so on. And I was involved in that scene for many years. But what really struck a chord with me, you know, was seeing some of my friends who started failing out of school. Some of my friends were having to check into rehab. Some of my friends were getting arrested and so on. And I had to question myself, Matt, is this a life that you really want to live? Is this something that you think that you can work through? You know, and I felt to myself that I just, I owed it to everybody else around me, I owed it to myself, you know, being somebody who's always taken his education seriously. always been actively involved in the community, leadership, scholarship, you name it, you know, that I recognized fairly quickly I had to get my life back on track. And that was a difficult balance for a very long time. And even to this day, you know, really having to watch and make sure that, you know, I don't take any chances that can lead me down that path as well. So it does hit close to home, you know, even personally as well.
0: Yeah, it can really just sneak up on you. And I think the more accomplishments and education that someone has, the easier it is to justify that it's not actually a thing.
1: No, that's exactly it. Why I just gave that uh, gesture to you right now. And I know not everybody could see that because this is a recorded uh, audio podcast, but it's ever so true. And how many clients have I worked with where ultimately it comes down to them outsmarting themselves? Well, I have all these accomplishments. I do get up in the morning and I'm effectively working my job. I've got the promotion. I'm getting the raise. I'm taking care of my kids. They're getting to school. I'm putting food on the table and I'm living this very successful life. You know, and I think that that's one of the biggest problems where it really does creep up on people are those who are the functional alcoholic, if you will, or the functional you know individuals struggling, whatever type of substance use that they're doing.
0: Yeah. And a lot of us think that we're just doing what everybody else is doing. Everybody drinks the way that I drink. Everybody feels hungover or is kind of slow in the morning. But there's a difference between someone who's binge drinking sometimes or or even daily drinking and someone who actually like has alcohol use disorder or struggling with addiction, what would you say like the difference is?
1: No, absolutely. And, you know, to that point here as well, you know, we tend to associate with people who are similar to us, you know, so ultimately you can end up normalizing the substance use as you were just identifying here a moment ago. And that, well, you know, my drinking isn't atypical compared to my social group. You know, they're drinking every single day, having a six-pack after work, so am I. What you're failing to recognize is that many people, majority of people, aren't living that type of lifestyle. You've just gone ahead by association and you've normalized that in your life. Um, now taking a look at drinking in general, drinking in general isn't necessarily problematic. You know, it's something that's highly socialized. Sometimes individuals want to have their nightly glass of wine for the antioxidants, if you will. Sometimes you come back after a long day of work, have a couple of beers to try to relax, or you're watching the football game. You know, we do it at birthday parties, holidays, religious events, so on and so forth. So it's something that's highly socialized. And in moderation, it's not necessarily problematic. However, as we've been talking about, it can creep up on you very quickly over time. You know, in terms of somebody who's a daily drinker, um, again, many people can have that glass of wine at night, have a couple of beers, and continue to live happy, functional, lives, you know, in which you're able to be fully functional. It's not a major problem for them. However, you know, it does become more problematic when you're increasing that when two drinks lead to three, lead to four, lead to five, lead to six. And your daily consumption is normally two drinks, but you had a particularly bad day. So you go to six. Then the next day you had a bad day and you justify it. Well, the previous day I had six and that helped me out. So now tonight I'm going to have eight It just creeps up on you. But what can be especially scary as well is the binge drinking, or as we like to refer to as the weekend warrior, if you will. Now, these individuals might be able to abstain the entire week. They can go Monday through Friday without drinking. Heck, Maybe they can even go Sunday without drinking, but when they do start drinking, it's almost as though there are no boundaries whatsoever, there's no filter whatsoever. We start drinking to the nine and trying to become drunker than the week previous, and that's especially problematic because here you're engaging in a high-risk behavior. You're putting yourself at increased uh, risk of alcohol poisoning, overdose— Putting yourself at increased risk of um, getting into a vehicular accident or working with some other type of motorized vehicle—that's very problematic. And that's another one where many people do try to outsmart themselves. In that, well, you know, I'm only drinking on the weekend. But again, just because you abstained all week doesn't make it appropriate to consume a 12-pack in a three-hour setting. You know, that is very, very unhealthy for you. We have to remember the way that our body metabolizes this. When you're consuming at that type of rate, your liver and kidneys can't possibly filter this- this appropriately so that's even more problematic than having the glass of wine every single day or having two beers after work you know going there and to the nine with it now the difference was something like alcohol use disorder and you know, we do have mild moderate severe type of conditions But with these individuals the big thing is a loss of control with it you know here we have an individual who's justifying use at every single angle we have the individual who just struggles to be able to escape the drink, the individual who struggles to have boundaries about around how much you're going to drink in any given type of setting or situation and so on. You know, especially here in the pandemic, you know, we have a lot of individuals who are working remotely from home, you know, so they don't have to worry about going into the office and their manager or supervisor smelling the alcohol on their breath, or maybe they don't even have video conferences and everything they're doing is written. So they're not even able to see, you know, the look in their eye, the face expression, them being disheveled when they're coming into work in the morning, you know, people are starting to slip away with this a lot more and more. So now it's becoming something can have a few drinks in the morning as I start work. Have a liquid lunch, if you will, which liquid lunch is referred to when you consume alcohol instead of actually eat your meal, you know, after work, drinking some more, then just continually build their lives around this. And it's it's a very scary type of situation to be in because again, you know, as you're drinking to that excess, you know, your tolerance is increasing. And as your tolerance increases, that means that you need more to get the desired effect. And the withdrawal effect is going to be even more significant. So as you're withdrawing, you're feeling uncomfortable, you're irritable, you're just not feeling in the right state of mind so now you drink again to be able to feel normal tolerance has been increased now you have to drink even more to get to that point withdrawal is more intense and it's that vicious cycle that we talk about with addiction that's never ending until you do ultimately reach out for treatment.
0: You made so many good points there, but the two that I'm obsessed with right now is loss of control and the mental obsession. I'm so interested in like why loss of control happens and why we think about our drinking so much. And what I didn't understand, I used to just say everybody drinks like me, this person's worse, at least I'm not as bad as them. Um, And then when I stopped drinking, I realized like, wow, no, not everybody drinks like me. Actually, nobody does. It was just me the whole time. And I thought it was very interesting that you said it's not normal. We are normalizing it with the circle that we're keeping. I think that's a really important distinction there. Um, And I think the obsession and the bargaining and trying to convince yourself it's okay, and oh, I can do it today, even though I said I wouldn't. And all of those mental gymnastics, I think that. Is a big sign too that someone's life just revolves around their drinking.
1: Well, oh, absolutely. Now, you touched upon uh, many important points here, uh, Jill, that resonate very deeply with me here as well. You know, one of the things that you just said here a moment ago in terms of trying to compare your life to that of others and saying that, well, I'm not as far gone as this other person. I'm not near my rock bottom. You know, and that's something that we do continually to try to feel better about ourselves. You know, we have individuals who upward compare, you know, want to be successful and they can't celebrate their accomplishments because they keep looking to the person above them. But we also have individuals who downward compare and take a look at, well, you know, I'm at six drinks a day. This person's at 12 drinks a day. So I'm not nearly as far gone as this individual or, oh, well, I can pay the bills. This individual's struggling with it. So I'm in a good place or, oh, I'm raising my children. Well, you know, their children are unruly when they go out in public. I'm doing well. And that's something that helps us feel better about ourselves. We justify it. And with that being said, we're constantly stepping over our own boundaries. We're crossing those boundaries, if you will. And we keep pushing them out a bit further and further and further and further, you know, to a point to where we completely lose ourselves in the mix. You know, this is also kind of a moral, a virtue, you know, type of problem that we have here. And for many people who are struggling with this, if you were to ask them, well, before the struggle started, you know, what type of limitations and boundaries did you have before and they would look a lot different than where they are right now you know and this is something that we do generally as a society think about when you're checking out at the grocery store you see the national inquirer the star magazine we see successful people who are falling from grace and it helps us feel a lot better about ourselves in our everyday lives i mean this is the type of thing you know we do so it is completely normal but the other part of it that we really have to think about with the vicious cycle is the cognitive mentality behind it because as we do notice and many people, even when they're in denial, they do recognize that there is a problem there, but they're just trying to pull the wool over their own eyes, you know, hide their head in the sand, like the ostrich, if you will. And in doing that, you know, try to cope in a maladaptive type of fashion. So now I'm feeling bad about myself and what I'm doing. because I recognize it's a problem. So I'm just going to drink it away, or I'm going to smoke it away. I'm going to inject it away, all these different types of things that we do. And you feel good for a few moments, the high wears off now you're back to where you started. Actually, you know what? No, I'm not going to say you're back to where you started because you're back to you're in an even worse place than you were before. And, you know, one of the things I constantly find myself saying to clients, to my students and people in my everyday life, you know, we talk about that whole entire saying, and I believe it was Albert Einstein who said this, if you continue to do what you've always done, you'll continue to receive what you've always uh, gotten. Maybe I misquoted who it was by, but that is a famous quote that we have here. But the reality is it's a law of diminishing effects. If you continue to do what you've always done, things are going to continue to get worse down the line and people aren't recognizing that. And that's another problem with the addiction here because you feel like, okay, well, if I continue down this path. Things are going to stay where they're at right now. And it's really not that bad of a place. I'm not hitting rock bottom. I'm nowhere close. So I'm safe. I'm going to continue living this life. It feels good.
0: Yeah, exactly. I couldn't possibly have a problem. I'm not I'm not doing, you know, whatever. At least I don't drink in the morning. And then when you have a drink in the morning occasionally, like you said, your boundaries keep getting pushed back. Then there's another at least. At least I'm not drinking at work until you do.
1: It's always five o'clock somewhere, right? <laughs>
0: There's always a reason it's raining out. It's the perfect time to drink. It's sunny out. It's a great time to drink. Fall's coming. Doesn't that make you want to drink? Spring is coming. There's
1: there's always a reason. Yes, and that's such a great point that you made right now too. And one thing that I would have to do in preparing, especially for holidays or other type of milestone events with my clients, I would say, okay, you know, a big celebration is coming up. I know that normally you use to try to cope with the pain and try to numb yourself and so on. But another reason to use is to celebrate. Do you have the protective measures in place to ensure that you don't relapse? Let's speak about these. So we would always have some type of proactive measure in place to prepare for what is going on, you know, at the event. You know, do you have an emergency number that you can call? Do you have social support who's going to be there with you? Is this a place that's going to be serving lots of drinks or is it an abstinent type of party? You know, what are you going to do to protect yourself going into the situation? And again, whatever the reason, we're able to justify it. And that's a big problem.
0: Yeah, a lot of people are enhancement drinkers and not just like drinking to cope with something. There's, there's all sorts of reasons to drink. I think identifying that you have lost control is very shameful and I think most people just think like okay well I'll just try to moderate I'll just try to get some control and then I'll be fine why is that so hard for us to do when we're so dedicated to trying to learn how to do it.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, what you're talking about here is a commonly used strategy that we do use in the substance use field. It's called harm reduction. You know, so individuals who are, let's say, drinking a 12-pack of beer a day, you know, okay, well, let's try to scaffold it down. Let's go down to 10 beers this next week. Let's go down to eight beers this next week. Let's go down to six, four, three, you know, and continually decrease it. And while that does work for some people, the issue is that you still have the trigger there. It is still excess. Accessible to you so maybe you know most of the week you are going from 12 down to 10 But then you hit that snag. There's that bad day. Well, I'm going to have 11 today and then tomorrow I'll have nine and try to balance it out. Or maybe you had that really great day. You're trying to celebrate. Okay, well, I'm going to have all 12 today and then tomorrow I'll have eight, but it doesn't necessarily work out that way. You know, that whole entire saying out of sight, out of mind, you know, that could be really helpful for a lot of people. And that's what we say in recovery, change your person's place's things. We want you to remove the paraphernalia. We want you to remove um, the actual substance in the house, get all the alcohol out of your house. But the problem, especially with something like alcohol these days, is it's highly accessible. It's in the grocery stores, the restaurants, gas stations, gas stations. That's the one that really blows my mind. Don't drink and drive. You you find all these tall boys with additional, you know, higher percentage volume in the gas station. So it's all around us. You know, So being able to take that step and, you know, kind of white knuckle it and say, okay, you know, I'm just going to remain absent altogether. I'm going to stop it. Is the best approach for many people, but we also have to consider one of the caveats with alcohol is that. You can die from withdrawal. And that's something that we have to be very cognizant of when we're trying to work with individuals. Now, if I have somebody who's consuming in the area of, let's say, you know, a liter of vodka a day, or somebody's consuming a handle of vodka a day. I know to many people a handle of vodka a day sounds incomprehensible, but guess what? It's true. And I've worked with clients who've been able to consume something like that. I've had clients who've come into the office to see me having already consumed a liter of vodka presenting completely normally because guess what? That's what it required for them to get to the point of appearing sober and feeling normal. Now, if we were to just say to those individuals, okay, quick cold turkey, stop using it, their system will go into shock. They'll experience seizures, may have cardiac arrest, hallucinations, delusions, all this type of stuff goes into that. You know, so for many people who do get to that more severe end of the spectrum, we're considering a medical type of detox, which is usually 72-hour type of thing, maybe followed by some residential inpatient type of treatment. So it's very important when we're working with individuals who are trying to abstain from alcohol that we meet them where they're at because not meeting them where they're at can be completely dangerous. You know, someone might come in well-intended with that uh, handle of vodka a day and say, I'm going to quit." cold turkey. But if I were to feed into that and say, okay, I think that's a really great plan. Let's start this road to recovery. And you know, my patient might ultimately end up dying. And that's obviously the worst case scenario.
0: Yeah. Sometimes it is a really big win to go from drinking at that quantity to just backing off and drinking less. Or, or some if someone was a daily drinker to back off and drink, you know, just on Saturday nights and, and take that step first. Not everyone's going to be able to just, stop entirely all at once. Everyone has a different journey.
1: Absolutely. And I would say in full disclosure that most clients I've worked with, whether it's alcohol or something else, more often than not, they really do struggle with that type of approach and just trying to loosen it as they're continuing to move forward. Now, there are many people who are able to do it. And maybe you do have individuals who are more in the mild to moderate end of the spectrum. Maybe you have the individuals more of a casual type of drinker says, you know what, you know, instead of having those two beers a throughout the week. I'm just going to cut it all out. You know, maybe Friday night, I can have two glasses of wine, Maybe Saturday, I'll have four beers during the NCAA games. Sunday, I can have four beers while I'm barbecuing and watching the NFL. You know, and they're able to do something like that. And that's true. You know, a lot of people find success there. But when we especially get to the end of diagnostic criteria, the individuals who are coming to see substance use counselors, individuals like myself, are usually far beyond that point. And abstinence approaches do tend to work well for many people. But at the same time, they can backfire. So it's very important that we do assess our clients fully, you know, ensure that we're meeting all their individual needs and coming up with the best plan possible, because this is not a one size fits all approach. Everybody's road to recovery looks different, just like everybody's road to addiction looks different. You know, there are a lot of common factors for many people, but at the same time, the individual experience, we have to take that into account because if we don't, we're going to fall short and ultimately let you know, individuals who are trying to recover down.
0: Yeah, when you were talking about um, the person who's setting the goal to have 10 beers a day, I forgot that I used to do that kind of thing. So I was laughing. I used to have like my daily thing and I'd be like, OK, well, I want to have however many more today. So then tomorrow I'll just have that. I was like doing that bargain and it never worked. I never had less than <laughs> I <started. laughs>
1: but, Oh, Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And that's why just cutting it off worked best for me because I could not stop thinking about it. I thought about it at all times. And until I was able to cut it off for good, I wasn't going to be able to stop thinking about it.
1: Absolutely. And as you were saying that, I was thinking of individuals I've worked with who have it marked on their calendar, you know, week one, 10 every single day, week two, eight every single day, and they're cutting it down. But then as they go through, oh, well, you know, yeah, I had the 12, so I'm going to write 12 on here and change tomorrow down to an eight and so on. And it just (laughs) ultimately ends up backfiring.
0: It seems so convincing, though. It seems like it's a really good idea until you get to the next day and that like you said that's a hard day too and then now you only have eight but you really wanted 12.
1: absolutely and I don't you know and I don't want to discredit the intentions that anybody have here and does it sound like a good idea absolutely are the intentions pure yes you know anybody who's willing to move forward with the recovery you know I, I commend them for that I really do when my heart goes out to you you know whatever it is it's going to take you to, to make those first steps you know that's something I truly find admirable because the is one of the most difficult life battles anybody could ever face. You know, and that's ever so important. So now you've gotten to the point of acknowledging having the issue. You're trying to take the steps. And those are the type of people I really love to see supported, you know, while they're trying to go through their journey. But unfortunately, in many cases, it does require a bit more or a lot more.
0: Yeah, and the issue, I think, with a lot of us in general, but especially people that are trying to just reduce is we cannot imagine never drinking again. We can't imagine even living a good, happy life without alcohol for celebrations or and we imagine all the things in our future. How am I not going to have a glass of champagne on New Year's Eve? And like the thought of it feels so depressing and defeating. And what would you say to someone who's like at their that point where they cannot imagine? living without alcohol.
1: Absolutely. And I agree with you. The thought can be terrifying uh, for many people. You know, what I would say to that individual is that your recovery is an investment, not only in you, but an investment in everybody else you love. Who's there in your life? There are many other types of things that you can do in this life to have an enjoyable time, to enjoy New Year, to ring in the New Year, if you will, to be able to celebrate the different holidays, birthdays, all these different types of milestones. You know, think about the simplicity. Well, I can't say simplicity of childhood for everybody because I do know a lot of clients who've come in to see me, you who know, did have very traumatic type of upbringings. You know, but in a general sense, trying to think back to the simplicity of childhood and, you know, getting a dollar store toy is something that can lift your spirits or listening to a song you find enjoyable, kicking the ball around with your friends in the backyard, these types of things before you're introduced to the substances, you know, all that type of stuff is still around you right now. There's so many different things that you can enjoy in your life that go well beyond drugs and alcohol, you know, taking a walk outside, meditating, watching an enjoyable show, reading a book, writing a book, you know, doing all sorts of different types of pro-social things, investing in your health, and that's enjoyable. And guess what? There are natural ways to be able to feel that high. You know, the runner's high they talk about after running a marathon or for somebody like me who's got bad joints, doesn't run that often. I can jog down the block and I'll get a runner's high, you know, from that type of experience. You know, having that sense of accomplishment in which you feel so good. Those also trigger the reward pathway, giving you the similar type of effect that you receive from drugs and alcohol, you know, so being able to find that natural way to be able to uplift your spirit, you know, is something that I think we really want to consider here, you know, just also having a sense of accomplishment of being able to overcome something that hundreds of thousands of people, you know, millions of people globally die from every single year, you overcome, not only are you a survivor, you're a warrior, and that's something worth fighting for, that can be the thing that can help people push forward.
0: I love that. And there was a time in everybody's life where we didn't feel that alcohol or drugs were essential to living life. And so it is possible to feel that way again. I think it's challenging for people to know, like, what else do I do with my time? Like, yeah, I have the intention to not drink and have a better life, but then I go to work and it's really hard. And and I just want to look forward to my glass of wine when I get home and they're paralyzed with not even knowing any other option. Like what else can I even do that would that would help me as much as that glass of wine does.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think another thing that's necessary for individuals to understand is, you know, it is, it's a human inclination. It's part of our condition that it's uncomfortable to step outside of our comfort zone. We really hate change. We want to feel good all the time. You know, so think about it. Any type of given day, how many different moods do you experience? And I'm not talking about some type of uh, mood disorder, whether it's a unipolar, bipolar type of condition, just in your everyday general type of experience. So you may wake up feeling exhausted. You may be apprehensive about your work upcoming. You're really excited about an accomplishment you had. You're sad about the bad news you heard on the radio. And we go through all these different types of moods throughout the day. And I think it's important for everybody to normalize and understand that you're not always going to be a 10 out of 10. You know, the average human being, you know, in terms of satisfaction and well-being rates around a seven on that one to ten type of scale. But even for the happiest of people, guess what? In a given day, you might have a three, you might have a six, you might hit the nine, you might go down. So being able to normalize that is going to be very important. But also considering different ways that you would be able to replace without it becoming an addiction as well, but different ways that you can replace that alcohol as a coping mechanism in your life. You know, so if you do find that generally you're done with work at five, you get home by six and the first thing you do is have that glass of wine. You know, when you finish work at five, go to the gym at six o'clock or, you know, participate in some type of sports team or get involved in some type of other extracurricular. You know, they'll be able to keep you occupied.
0: Yeah. Trying new things is really important because we build everything around drinking alcohol. So we give up a lot of things so that we can just drink alcohol. And when you remove it, There aren't a lot of hobbies that are left over besides TV.
1: The TV one is especially one that can get people here these days. Is we have so many streaming programs, you know, and especially considering that they're relatively low cost as compared to cable or satellite. I know many people have their traditional type of platform and all the streaming platforms. It almost gets to a point where that can be, you know, overwhelming here as well. Just trying to decide what to watch. You can spend as much time trying to find what to watch as you would watching the actual show itself. So that could be a little bit overwhelming too. But the important thing to really consider here is what resonates with you. Again, I keep referring back to that whole saying that this isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. You know, what's self-care for me isn't necessarily self-care for you. You know, I'm somebody who loves listening to music. I like my oldies, classic R&B, Motown, and so on. You know, like my, um, or in terms of contemporary music, I like listening to a lot of hip hop and rap. But if you were to play country music for me, that wouldn't be self-care. You know, and that's one thing that we really have to think about too, is finding what works for you. What is something that brings you joy? What is something where you feel as though um, you are in the state of flow? And as Martin Seligman, Positive Psychology, said, But, you know, the state of flow is when you're doing something that you love, you're engaging in your life's calling. And as you do this, you you don't even feel the passing of time. It's just you're completely lost in the moment. You're grateful for what you're doing. And that's as powerful of a life experience as anybody can possibly have. Extending that gratitude in the moment and doing what it is they love doing. All of us have that, although it can be very difficult to find. And it can certainly take some soul searching to be able to get there.
0: How can we get started finding things that we might love and and like to do instead of drinking? You know, I think, a lot, you
1: know, and this is kind of a funny question. So clients give you that awkward eye, if you will, like kind of raise the eyebrow at me when I ask, well, what did you enjoy in childhood? Oh, Matt, what does it matter what I enjoyed in childhood? I'm 47 years old right now. I try to recover from this addiction. I don't understand why you're even asking me this question. And I was like, well, you know, let's really think about it. A lot of stuff that we used to enjoy in childhood does follow us to this point in life to some extent, you know, not necessarily with employment, and I know I've done many like, little studies with students and such, you're like, oh, yeah, here does your career have anything to do with what you enjoyed in childhood? You know, many of them say yes. Many of them say no. But in terms of some of the activities that we do enjoy, you know, they can follow through. You know, maybe as a kid, you really enjoyed uh, playing hockey on the team. You never made it to the NHL or you didn't even make it to the NCAAs. You know, but your park district has an adult hockey team that you could do as an intramural. That could be something fantastic to do. Or for me as a little kid, I used to try to write poems. To, impress. Uh, It's what I used to try to do to try to get girlfriends and, you know, get their attention and such. And, you know, okay, then I kind of lost track of that for a while. My undergraduate poems were a little bit more depressing. And now I'm writing children's books, you know, and that ultimately came full circle for me. You know, just finding those things that, you know, brought you joy, something that was something positive in your life. You know, and even as far as if it's something like video games, if you enjoyed video games, you know, you don't want to come home and spend eight hours a day on video games or forget your work and other obligations. But even if it's a half hour or an hour playing video games every single day, you know, here you're working on hand-eye coordination, you're working on problem solving, critical thinking and so on, and it's keeping you removed from the alcohol. But if alcohol was the enhancer that you did during video games, probably would want to abstain from something like that. So it's really going to be about finding that balance as you're going through, asking yourself, what do you enjoy? And then just starting to put it into action. If you find something works, stick with it, make different rules around it. You find something that doesn't work. Okay, let's move on to the next thing and continue doing that as you move forward. But the thing that's important to know here is that there's really not a quick fix. Recovery is a lifelong type of thing. We want to be intentional and consistent every single day with what we're doing. There'll be easy days. There'll be hard days. But it's something that always needs to be at the forefront of one's mind to be able to continue moving forward here. And if we think that we're just going to snap our fingers, wave a wand, sprinkle some fairy dust, and we're going to be recovered, that's not the way it works. And we have to keep in mind with the nature of addiction is that many individuals are impulsive. They want things to happen right here and now. And when recovery doesn't happen right here and now, it's something that's highly discouraging, feels as though they can never get through it. It's a hopeless and helpless type of state. And then we just ultimately give up before we really put in the effort. So also being realistic and all that recovery entails, that's going to be an important part of it. So a lot of trial and error is involved with finding these activities, but just continuing to stick with it, follow through with what you enjoy. Ultimately, you can and will get there. Many people do.
0: Yeah, and if you try something and it sucks, you don't have to do it again, and you learn something. You learn you don't like that thing.
1: Exactly, and why continue punishing yourself with a thing that sucks? There's no reason to do that.
0: (laughs) It's funny that you mentioned video games, too, because that's my thing that I... Did from childhood that now I do as an adult.
1: Oh, I love that. Well, I have three little children who are ages uh, seven, five, and one. Actually, my one year old turns two this weekend, and I use them as an excuse to play video games again. (laughs) It gets me out of trouble with the misses. So that's certainly a great thing. But it's so fun being able to teach them how to beat the different levels and, you know, being able to see the smile on their face as they, you know, continue to have success in the game or if they beat me for the first time at something or, you know, maybe I'll let them beat me. It depends. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing all this with us. I think this was so helpful. Um, where can we learn more about your work and connect with what you're doing?
1: Absolutely. Well, I do have a website, uh, counselingbygloviak.com, and that includes some episodes uh, from Mental Health Matters with Dr. Matt, which was a local-run show here in Bolingbroke, uh, Illinois, community. So I did that from 2019 to 2021. I have many articles I've written on addiction through Choosing Therapy, include some of my books on there, have many of the media entries I've written on a variety of mental health topics, many of which are addiction. I'm continually updating that, but even typing in my name, Dr. Matt Gloviak, into a simple Google search, you'll be able to find uh, much of my writing and other things I've done to contribute to the field.
0: Awesome. I will link all of that in the show notes for anyone who wants more. Um, And thank you again for being here.
1: Hey, thank you for inviting me and thank you for everything that you're doing. This is a brilliant show. You're doing amazing things. and I truly admire your journey and highly respect what you're doing. So it's an honor and a privilege to have this time with you here today.